This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Right, so what do we make of 2020 so far? Seems great, but uh, maybe a different sort of year to come. That's at least the consensus that seems to be reached by a whole bunch of people on Wall Street. Let's break it down with Luke Kawa. He is cross-asset reporter for Bloomberg here with us in New York to talk about the most read story on the Bloomberg, not surprisingly, it's comprehensive. Taylor, you can sort of lose yourself in this story if you uh, if you want to. Searching by key themes, asset classes, institutions, all of it. Uh, Luke, great to have you with Taylor and myself. So give us the overview here. Uh, a lot of consensus, it feels like. Yeah. For, first of all, I have to give it up to Sam Potter, my colleague in London, who's actually the the gentleman who compiled this. Hopefully he's in bed by now. Uh, you know, hard worker up early. So uh, just uh, to kind of set the stage here, it's it's amazing how similar a lot of the themes are. One thing, and this is what uh, John Farrow this morning led off his show with, cautious optimism is essentially the, the order of the day. But the idea that you can't or it will be very difficult to repeat the kind of eye-popping performance across major asset classes in 2019, whether to the same uh, magnitude or the same breadth. Uh, that's what Wall Street is casting a lot of doubt on. But the, the general outlook here is for stocks to go up in the U.S., probably more in the rest of the world. For credit, you know, you're more clipping coupons than getting the kind of huge spread rally combined with the big duration kicker you got in some parts of the bond universe last year. Uh, another year, another year of calling for a softer dollar. So that's also uh, in the cards. And the 10-year treasury yield after, you know, a, a wild year in which it uh, rallied quite magnificently, uh, the 10-year bond, it's expected to be rather range-bound, maybe edge up. To, to about 2%, but uh, the Treasury market, in particular the 10-year yield, should not be making nearly as many headlines this mm. year as it was last year if Wall Street's right. Luke, fascinating report, and I love how you have tied in equities, bonds, currencies, commodities, all the works. One thing that you ended on that caught my attention was calls for the 10-year, and I scroll down through the report, and we get to another uh, thing that's talking about negative rates, and you know the story. Negative yielding debt shrunk. Really, it's now only $11 trillion. It used to be $17 trillion. What are the expectations for negative rates, negative yielding debt, as we've come off those highs a bit. Well, part of the kind of convergence trade that was in effect for, you know, a bit or uh, not too much, but enough of 2019, at least in the bond market, kind of involved just what you're talking about from its peak of nearly, what was it, 17 trillion or 15 trillion, somewhere in that neighborhood, that number getting a lot smaller as we approached year end. And with the 10-year treasury expected to stay relatively sticky, uh, the way convergence is expected to happen is to drag more and more out of that debt, but maybe not too much, but more and more out of negative territory. And there's another 
story this morning out from one of my colleagues in London just talking about the you know amount of government debt that's going to need to be rolled over this year. Uh, not a crazy amount, but uh, you know just the idea that the the data this morning don't necessarily support it, especially in Europe. But just the idea that as the global economy does bottom out, convergence will mean more and more economies and more and more sovereign debt getting to a place where holding to maturity will actually yield you something positive. And so, Luke, when you look across all of this and think about the R word, recession, it was something that if you go back a few months, September, the drumbeat was getting a little bit louder. What's the consensus, if there is any, about the potential for recession in 2020? So, I, yeah, if you had done this survey in August, you know, if we had the uh, some kind of weird calendar, I bet you would have got a lot of different responses on that front right now. And you can see this all across, you know, different bits of markets, whether you're looking at equities, whether you're looking at, you know, the uh, the potential for options that pay out if there's deflation. We've really priced out the tail risk of recession, and that's warranted and uh, that's thoroughly, thoroughly expounded upon in this report in everyone's base case. It's essentially growth will be better than it was in 2019, but not as good as it was in 2017 or 2018. So just this idea that growth is slow, growth will be in or around 2%. So not a recession, but not uh, something to essentially wave flags about. And then, Luke, tie in fiscal policy with monetary policy. What takes more center stage? Well, I, uh, in general, as you see these, these outlooks, both U.S. election risk, is, which I think ties yeah. more into the fiscal policy side, or at least the fiscal outlook thing, that's always, if you, if you go through these, it's uh, at least a cursory mention in everyone's report. This is a year in which monetary policy is expected to, especially in developed markets, really go to the wayside. It's not supposed to be interesting to any respect. And in fact, if you look at the European Central Bank, it'll be most noteworthy for what monetary policymakers are able to kind of convince or cajole fiscal policymakers into doing in the year ahead. However, there isn't necessarily a ton of optimism that that baton pass is really going to go off well. So in terms of the, the stimulus, or the impulse we're getting from easier monetary or fiscal policy. It's more the lagged effect. You know, it's said that monetary policy works with these long and variable lags. It's more that that's expected to continue to be helping out as we go through 2020. All right, Luke Cow, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much, Cross Asset Reporter, part of a massive team that put together this most read story on the Bloomberg today. And I do encourage you to go check it out because you can, as I said, sort of search by themes, asset class, institution, and get a really holistic sense of how Wall Street is feeling about all the major issues as we head into what is bound to be a very interesting year. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. The passing of David Stern, longtime commissioner of the NBA, has led to an unbelievable outpouring of grief, but also some remembrances of really a truly remarkable life and an impact that few have had on the world of sports. Eben Novi Williams, sports business reporter, podcast host, extraordinaire, so many more things here at Bloomberg, joins me in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. I, I mean, what an amazing guy in a lot of ways. Yeah, we had David on the podcast uh, a little bit less than a year ago, actually, and he came on and I think we didn't have to say a single word, right? Yeah. He just kind of rattled off stories in Timpu Bhutan when he landed and, and found, you know, monks up there that were watching League Pass. They were watching Kobe Bryant on their yeah. computers, uh, which was one of the first times he realized that, hey, 
we have an international audience and we could be doing more to grow basketball overseas. I mean, he had an impact across the globe on the sports world for well, sure. And I have to say one of the things that I had candidly forgotten about, I did not realize he was the commissioner for 30 years. I mean, and, and when you think about where the NBA was in the mid eighties and where it is today, I cannot think of another business outside of like Apple that has, you know, sort of grown and influenced in the way that that league has. It's a great point. I mean, when he took over in 1984, I believe the NBA had just recently stopped having its finals on tape delay, right? So wow. it wasn't even a TV product at all. There were 24 teams. It was viewed largely as a circus. He kind of whipped the whole thing into shape, right? And one of his biggest initiatives when he was younger, um, fixing the, the image of the game right. and the players, right? I mean, at a time, a lot of that's racial, but the, the, the NBA, its players, was not a commercial entity in any capacity, right? And he, you know, at, at times drew hard lines that certainly the, the dress code that he that he put together is probably the most, you know, visible part of this. But, you know, he, he brought in stricter drug testing. He imposed very harsh penalties for a player that knelt during the national anthem or players that went into the stands to fight. Or remember when Latrell Sprewell choked his coach, uh, he was a disciplinarian. But right. all of that served to, I think, change the way that America and especially corporate America interacted with the NBA. And that's the reason why this is a $9 billion enterprise now. And even, I mean, some of the statistics are stunning when you look at NBA revenue, bringing it from $118 million to $5.5 billion in 2014, the year he retired. What did he do for the franchise, not only in terms of revenue, but geographic expansion and really making this a global sport? Yeah, so expansion across the U.S. obviously, you know, happened, you know, pretty quickly under his under his tenure. But but globally, I think is is the bigger thing there, right? You know, back in the 80s, he cut the first NBA deal with CCTV. They were shipping VHS tapes overseas so that highlight packages could be cut and shown to the Chinese audience. You know, flash forward 30 years, the NBA has a billion dollar business in yeah. China, right? Which was in the news this year for another reason. But uh, the, the reason why the NBA is the, is the most popular foreign league in China, it's possibly the most popular sport outside of soccer around the globe. A lot of that has to do with the fact that right. long before the NFL was saying, man, we have to have a presence overseas, the NBA was already doing the legwork to make right. that happen. Help us understand, and you alluded to this earlier, Eben, sort of the player empowerment piece of this, because what you have seen, and you and I have talked about this a lot over the last couple of years, this notion that NBA players have transcended in a way that certainly other major sport athletes aren't anymore or never were. Did he play a role in that? For sure. And, and, and it was kind of a confluence of multiple things, right? He had the benefit of very early in his commissionerhood to have a guy named Michael Jordan yes. end of the league, right? Who, who totally changed the way that athletes merge as, as businessmen uh, when they're not playing. Uh, but yes, you know, part of his, you know, shaping up the image of the league was also helping push a lot of these players outward, right, right. To, to, to corporate America. Uh, and then flash forward to that now, and you're right, you know, if you look across the four major leagues, there's no question that NBA players are more famous on average than, right. than their counterparts in other leagues. Part of that has to do with the fact that they don't wear helmets and right. they, you know, they walk down the street and you go, oh, I, I know that. That's Chris Bosh. That's LeBron James. Um, but, yeah, a large part of that has to do with the fact that, that from the top down, uh, it was it was a priority for the NBA. And that's smart business, right? I think he realized very early on that, that another way to grow 
the the popularity of basketball uh, was to do it on the backs right. of of the players and not necessarily just the brand of the New York Knicks or the, or the brand of the Washington Wizards. It was interesting to note too, in a lot of these tributes, many of which were on Twitter. You know, you look at what Magic Johnson said, you look at what LeBron James said, you looked at what Michael Jordan said. They were very personal tributes in a lot of ways and sort of pointing out how David Stern was a part of these sort of seminal moments, not just in their careers, but in their lives. You think about what Stern did for Magic Johnson when he came out and said he was HIV positive, like it really uh, a guy who was just in the center of, uh, of so much. Evan Novi Williams, thank you so much. Sports business reporter for Bloomberg, also co-host of the Bloomberg Business of Sports podcast with Michael Barr and Scott Soshnick. Check that out wherever you get your podcasts and, you know, when you're not listening to Bloomberg Business Week. It's a pretty good one. All right, so as we get you set for 2020, it's underway, the first trading day. Here we go, folks. Let's understand, and we started this conversation earlier in the hour with our own Luke Kawa. We're going to continue it with Brett Ewing. He is Chief Market Strategist for First Franklin Financial Services, joining us on the phone from Tallahassee, Florida. Brett, great to have you back with us. Thank you, Jason. All right, so tee this up. Tee this year up for us because 2019 unexpectedly in some ways was to use a technical term a heck of a year everybody felt great about it uh no huge surprises other than a couple of blips at least from an equity perspective how does 2020 look in comparison from your vantage point i'm optimistic on 2020 and i feel that uh it should be uh, again a pretty good year for equities um my theme for 2020 is basically it surprises surprises are going to be across the board again on on and they will be on the upside when we take a look at earnings which jason and i have been talking about in the last hour eagerly awaiting earnings numbers to start trickling out in the next few weeks or so what sectors do you really like as we sort of focus back on fundamentals yeah um with with sectors for 2020, uh, you know, we like the energy, materials, technology, um, on the healthcare, uh, medical devices specifically, and I also like industrials. And so when you think about those areas, what are the big risks? I mean, the political risk seems to be something that plays through just about everybody's uh, both both best and worst cases, how do you figure it in? Yeah, so the things that I'm looking at are the two primary concerns I have right here are trade war escalation. Is is that going to diminish? And I'm going to take the stance that I believe that the escalation is on a path to uh, dissipate. And I also believe the Federal Reserve and central bankers around the globe are on the right path and stepping to the side. And uh, they're being accommodative as needed. And so do you buy the idea, Brett, that like central banks become sort of the non-story of 2020? And if that's the case, and Taylor brought this up earlier in the show as well, do we focus more on sort of the fiscal rather than the monetary side? Well... I would like to think that uh, central bankers could stay out of the limelight. Um, it's, it's, that's, that doesn't often happen. Um, 
And I think that there could be a chance it's with good intentions that they want to stay on the sideline, but there there could be some some real wage growth here in 2020 and wage inflation could maybe push up some of the numbers going into the second half of the year that I think the Fed will be taking a look at. Brett, I really like some of your calls that we've been talking about. You like industrials. You're really looking at materials of having a good start to 2020 as commodities start to show some life. I was joking with Jason. I just did a crash course in commodities as I was anchoring a commodity show earlier today. And talk to me about what commodities you really like, because I hear calls for gold set to go to 1,600 an ounce, and yet copper really showing signs of rebounding too. Those two, one being a safe haven, one being a really um, sort of way to measure economic growth normally wouldn't coincide together. What do you like about the commodities? Well, I like the fact that they are a good indicator. And what they're telling me is that there's life in the global economy that's not really being priced in. And those commodities are historically a pretty good leading indicator that more positive days are coming for the global economy. And when you wrap that up with what I said about the central bankers and also about some of the trade, positive movement in the trade wars going on, then I I feel that that the commodity market is actually uh, pointing that out, that it's given us a sense of solitude that this is going to play out well. What's your biggest worry? What what do you worry most about? And as you talk to your clients, what are they most worried about as we get into 2020? You know, I I would love to see uh, productivity start going back up. It's been uh, tapering off here recently. And you need productivity with the labor market this tight to keep inflation from rearing its head unexpectedly. And so what I would like to see is productivity pick back up. I worry about inflation coming into the picture. I know that people have said there would be inflation for the last 10 years, and it just never shows up. But where we are in this labor market, if you look at the the wage growth that we finally received starting in 2018, I think that accelerates in 2020 with this tight labor market. And um, I really think that that could surprise people in the second half of the year. So there's want, my concern. Yeah, I want to go international for a bit. You're really liking EM debt here. Do I go dollar denominated or local currency? Well, I think uh, you know a lot of your viewers out there potentially could play that through uh, EM debt mutual fund or ETF, probably dollar denominated. But you know we're liking that in the space if you compare that to maybe corporate credit and how crowded those spreads are versus something in the emerging markets. I think there's better value there and a little bit more upside. And I think that's what's important for 2020. All right, Brett Ewing, thank you so much. Chief Market Strategist for First Franklin Financial Services, joining us on the phone from Tallahassee, Florida. Right. A showdown is certainly what it is turning out to be so far. We'll see where it goes next. Let's get into it with Eric Wasson. He is congressional reporter for Bloomberg, joining us from our 99.1 studio in the nation's capital. Eric, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. So what 
is the state of play here? Because I feel like some of us went away for the holidays knowing that there was a bit of a stalemate, but it seems to only be getting amped up in a way. Give us the latest. Well, you know, Congress left town on uh, the 19th of December, and there really haven't been any talks uh, since that time on sort of figuring out how the Senate will proceed with this impeachment trial of President Trump. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, sort of at the last minute, decided to withhold sending the actual documents and uh, withhold naming the managers, that's the House prosecutors that will appear in the well of the Senate to present the case, until she uh, gets more assurances this isn't what she said would be a sham uh, procedure. This is sort of a way of uh, Democrats of spotlighting Mitch McConnell, who has said that he's not going to be impartial and that he's going to coordinate with the White House. But uh, as far as I uh, was able to report out, uh, this is a risky strategy for Pelosi. She can do this for perhaps a week or two, highlight that uh, the, the Senate is moving along on a, a track not to have any witnesses or fresh documents. But at that, after that point, uh, the, his diminishing returns. And, and five of the uh, Democratic senators uh, are, in fact, running for president. And during any impeachment trial, if it drags into February, they will be stuck there as silent jurors and be unable to campaign. So that it really can't last that much longer, at least in the minds of most people I talk to. Yeah, and Eric, very good point about Nancy Pelosi, because we all felt like she sort of was even pressured to begin this impeachment stuff to begin with. She had even stated, I believe, earlier that, you know, it probably wasn't a good strategy for the Democrats. And then, you know, under pressure, she went ahead with it. What is the outlook for her then in terms of you can't drag this out more than a few weeks? Well, you know, House Democrats uh, came to the conclusion, this includes many of the moderates in the swing district, that they had to basically impeach President and Trump. They, they felt that there was enough evidence and that there's no way they could not do it. Uh, politically, though, I think Pelosi has her sort of finger on the pulse, and, and, and it's, it's proved right in many ways. President Trump's approval rating has not gone down. His core uh, base of support has remained with him, and I, we don't really see senators uh, who would be needed to uh, defect in order to convict him really uh, moving to do that. We saw some light criticism from Susan Collins, a, a vulnerable moderate uh, Maine senator who's up for re-election, criticizing McConnell for saying he wouldn't be impartial, but she didn't really buck his strategy, which is to uh, basically start the, the trial uh, with presentations and maybe talk about witnesses later. And so where does Chuck Schumer fit into to all of this? Because obviously a very well-known name, certainly to our crowd here, uh, Bloomberg listeners, especially in New York City, but also beyond well-known uh, for his ties to Wall Street. Uh, what? How much power does he have here? Because the dynamic in, in the Senate is a little bit different, right? Well, you know, Mitch McConnell was able is able to control the floor uh, most days, and in fact, famously with the Merrick Garland uh, Supreme Court nomination yes. under Obama, he was able to to just block that. He doesn't have the same amount of power when it comes to an impeachment trial. Uh, there needs to be 51 votes. Uh, the vice president's not involved in this. The, the chief justice is already sitting in the chair and can't vote. There need to be 51 senators to agree on a process. So, uh, you know, that is really what determines this. And if, if, if he loses, you know, four of his members, and that is possible with Murkowski, Collins, Romney, maybe McSally from, of Arizona, uh, and others saying we need to have witnesses, then that can be voted on and witnesses will proceed. And, and Schumer has laid out a very specific plan. He wants to see, the, you know, the director of the Office of Management Budget, John Bolton, the uh, uh, the National Security Advisor, who's now gone from the White House, and others who had direct knowledge of this withholding of Ukraine aid. He's laid it out. He also had a subsequent letter to McConnell with a long list of documents he wants to see, and he continues to to beat the drum. He's the lead negotiator here. Pelosi has made this uh, sort of move to withhold the articles, but he is the one who will be in the room uh, talking with McConnell on all of this. Well, and I think you brought up a very good point that if this goes on any 
much longer. You have a lot of the Democratic nominees who were out on the campaign trail that are now going to be tied up in some of these hearings as, as it all unfolds. Who are you hearing from your reporting is at the most risk from, you know, potentially being locked up in D.C. and not being out on that campaign trail? Well, you got to look at uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders who are really fighting uh, to gain first place. They have a lot uh, to lose by not being able to challenge and get uh, frontrunner Joe Biden, uh, you know, off of his position, which is right now the frontrunner in terms of polling numbers. And we'll see how it all shakes out when the Iowa votes uh, in early February. Uh, but, you know, certainly if they are trapped in in, in, this, in Washington, D.C. into February, that could be a problem. But, you know, the piece that I put on the uh, Bloomberg Terminal also talks about the risks of this delay for Republicans. There are some uh, vulnerable Republicans, including Cory Gardner of Colorado mm-hmm. uh, and, and Martha McSally of Arizona, and others who don't really want to talk about impeachment. They do not want to nationalize race. Uh, their big negative is really just Trump's negative approval rating. Uh, they want to talk about their own accomplishments, and about the economy, of course, which is very strong in the Republican strong suit here. Uh, but dragging impeachment out doesn't really help them either. All right, we're going to leave it there. Great stuff, really good context, and uh, I feel much more up-to-date on this having talked to you. Eric Wasson is congressional reporter for Bloomberg. He joined us from our 99.1 studio in Washington, D.C. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it's time for the drive to the close on this first day of trading of the new year. Let's bring in Kathy Boyle, president and founder of Chapin Hill Advisors, joining us on the phone from lovely Bedford, New York. Kathy, great to have you back with us. Happy New Year. Good to be here. And to you. Uh, so last year, pretty good year. I think it's safe to say for the equity markets, everybody felt uh, pretty good about their 401ks as they were reviewing them over the holidays. What does 2020 look like to you, just to start? So last year was driven by an expansion in PE, price over earnings ratio. So we started the year out um, with earnings estimates um, getting downgraded along the way, but the PE expanded from 13 to 18. And so I don't think this year is going to be the same unless we have a real acceleration of earnings, and that seems to be the the problem. Um, Recently, I just read a report with 15 companies reported in November, and there are wide swaths of different industries. Ten of those companies were then downgraded for Q1 with analysts. So that's not a good sign. Right now, earnings estimates are are rated to be a 9% increase. If they fall short of that, the PE could collapse. So I think, you know, risk is high at this point. Well, Kathy, I like that you talked about the divergence that we're seeing, because when you mentioned earnings, I'm taking a look at our estimates for the fourth quarter of 2019, which those figures we should be getting in several weeks or so. The index on an earnings per share year-over-year growth is expected to decline by 1.4%, but there's a lot of differentiation, as we know, tech looking to actually kind of grow the bottom line by about 3% or so. What are you seeing in terms of, of sectors Is it more of the same, those sort of cyclical high-growth sectors? Well, you know, value's out, growth has been in. And value has historically outperformed growth. 
Um, it's been a real decline. What people are not looking at is that, you know, today everybody's focused on stocks. Yes, yeah, so here we go, wicked up wave. People are saying, oh, we can extend this another 10 years. Um, I don't buy that at all. So I think that the things that have led the most, there's a very concentrated market. You've got a lot of hedge funds underperforming, 500 and some odd hedge funds closed this year. And um, they're giving up the ghost, and it's a very crowded market. Apple, the FANG names, those are the ones that are very crowded. So I think technology it cannot sustain where it is, which has driven NASDAQ's return, which is the highest return for 2019. Um, so I think that people have to be cautious. You have to be cautious in so many areas. Gold is a good place to go, and gold is something that you can act as a hedge. We've got global debt expanding. We've got debt to GDP at outrageous levels. We've got the highest enterprise to EBIT price to sales. We haven't seen these levels since 2000, actually, in those two metrics. All right. Speaking of Apple, Kathy, I just want to bring our listeners a quick headline. Taylor and I both saw it at the same time as uh, it crossed red on the Bloomberg. Apple crossing $300 for the first time as stock extends its record high. It's actually it's flirty. It's like right at uh, $300 now down uh, just below uh, $300. So we'll see where it closes there, Taylor. But uh, feels like a big deal to say the least. So Kathy, what worries you the most about this market right now? So it worries me the most that people are apathetic, you know, that um, people are not realizing that this debt liquidity sugar high can't continue forever. They're really not looking at the risk in the markets. And they don't understand that there's risk in the bond market and stock market. Bond market was up 8% last year. Just a small move in interest rates, Jason, can make a huge difference in a portfolio. Like a quarter point rise in a 10-year treasury can translate into a couple percentage points loss in your portfolio. And so they're really, people are not recognizing that the lack of correlation is not there. So a traditional 60-40 bond portfolio did great last year. 100% equity did even better, but it really wasn't much below that. I think it was 19% for 60-40 versus 20-something for the S&P, 26-29%. So you're not really giving up a lot to have that uh, mix. But what people are not looking at is the downside risk. And this we can't continue to inflate the debt that we have. The balance sheet of the Fed has gone up dramatically. Foreigners have slowed down, actually liquidated net $99 billion of fewer purchases of treasuries. And that supports the debt. We can't continue to print money and buy it back ourselves. So this helicopter sort of money um, could stop and rates start to rise. You've got a housing market that will quickly be affected. Mortgage rates go up. And uh, a huge subprime bubble with auto lenders, a huge amount of auto lenders have um, subprime debt. So these people are not good credit risks. And they, any rise in rates can cause more defaults. And these are packaged and bought in portfolios on Wall Street. So I think there's a lot of risk, but a lot of it relates to interest rate risk, in my opinion. Yeah, Kathy, talk to me more about those auto loans, because I was sitting here with Jason trying to figure out, I remember 2006, 2007, no one really saw the housing crisis. A few people were looking at certain cracks, and Jason and I were talking about, where is the next crack? Is it student loan debt? Is it corporate debt fallen angels? Is it the auto loan market? Are you really seeing the auto loans as a potential next crack, so to speak? Absolutely. I mean, I think it, it shows the, the lack of credit worthiness within our economy. So we're supposedly at full employment, um, yet the bulk of those jobs have been in lower paid, you know, um, 
industries like retail and uh, housekeeping and hotels, et cetera, hospitality. So I don't think the average American, 50% of Americans do not own any stocks. 20% of Americans have inflated their net worth over the last number of years. So this bifurcation between the up and the down, the higher level, lower level is concerning. So it's mortgages are also continuing to uh, creep back into that lower documentation, alternative documentation. Um, but the subprime market on auto is interesting because cars have gotten so expensive. When you finance an SUV at $70,000, $80,000, they're financing over a longer, longer period of time. And the depreciation rate of a car when you drive off the lot, you know, it just falls down. So the cars are not worth what the debt is worth. And the same thing with leasing, you know. So it's basically a Ponzi game they're playing. Now, how big is the auto market? Relative to the overall market, I don't know that, but Liberty Nation reports, and they said basically half, 20% of the loans originated in the first half of 2019 were subprime. Wow. That's a very large percentage. That is. You know, and that's, that's huge. $61 billion, you know, worth. So I think, and then what they do is they securitize these, they package them up and ship them out, and regular people buy them as alternatives to bonds within their portfolio or they go into bond funds. So that's another place where there's hidden risk in your portfolio. People don't always know what their duration is on their bond portfolio and they think a bond is safe. Right. All right. Uh, Nice words of nice words of caution. We're going to leave it there. Kathy Boyle, really appreciate it. Always good to catch up with you. President, founder of Chapin Hill Advisors, joining us on the phone from Bedford, New York. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.